We're chugging along through the latter half of the, the book of Acts. Paul is at the tail end now of his third missionary journey. And he had left this uproar that was happening in, in the previous uh, city of Ephesus. And he had decided he wanted to actually go through Macedonia and um, head back to Jerusalem. And so that's where we pick up the reading in verse 1 of chapter 20. And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through the districts and had given uh, them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by uh, Aristarchus and... Secundus of, Thessalon of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Uh, but these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. Amen. We'll stop there. This... Uh, Third journey, he left Asia Minor in Ephesus. He kind of sailed towards Europe, Macedonia, and Greece. Spent some time there, months, and he's decided, I, I was always intending to sail back through the Mediterranean and get to Jerusalem. But here, this plot forms against him as he's in uh, Greece. And he's like, wait a minute, I, I better change direction. I better uh, think this through again, and instead of sailing directly to Jerusalem, I'm going to backtrack a little bit, go through Macedonia, and make my way back to where I'm intending. Now, this message, Supernatural Scapegoat, I'm trying to, in a sense, position two ideas. Simple wisdom and extraordinary faith. I think at times it's easy for a Christian, a believer of God, to pit these two ideas against one another. Wisdom, faith. Kind of like the simplicity of making the right choice and believing in God for some miraculous deliverance. And as I've lived my Christian life, I, I've tried not to pit these two against each other. And I've seen it done well. And I've seen it actually when a person actually does that you know they'll have uh, a cancer and instead of going through treatment they'll say I believe in God for healing and they uh, forgo any medical treatment believing in a miraculous intervention now that's an extreme case but I've seen that play out in the people around me so this message supernatural scapegoat hopefully what I'll do by the end of this message is at least tease your mind and spirit to say, you know what, I should not consider God's supernatural intervention in my life as a scapegoat for simple wise choices. And I believe Paul here, as he's in Macedonia, as he went to Greece, and as he's always intending to go to Jerusalem, and for him to kind of just survey his surroundings, change course, decide to prolong it and go a different route, to me is an example of that. You know? 
as I, I, I see how he went about his daily business, his trust in God, there was something that was in his life that was just simple. Simple. I mean, uh, I mean, maybe even I was a youth pastor for you know many years. And you, you, there's also like, you know, that, that young student who says, I'm not going to study for the exam and I'm going to believe God will give me an A. I'm like, um, I don't think it works that way, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm not going to diligently prepare for the project that's in front of me. I'm just going to believe that God would give me the results. I'm not going to plan my business, but I believe God will make it thrive. Uh, like there's something like twisted there, like something off. Right? There, there is this wonderful thing that a person believes that God will show up and intervene in life, but when we forgo personal responsibility in an expectation that God will somehow scoop us out of the, the pit that we're in, there's something twisted there. The, that type of faith has been misaligned, that the first button of the shirt wasn't plugged into the right space, and everything else that kind of came after it was skewed, skewed. And so, the first point is simply this. God gave me a brain. <laughs> Novel idea, right? Novel, yes. But He has given us capacity. Now, there's a verse in Scripture that I, that I quote a lot, right? Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I see two things there. God gave us a mind to plan, but also there leaves room in our lives for God to direct and to lead us on a daily basis in our steps. But both is necessary, the planning of the mind and the direction of the Lord. That when we live a life of faith, we cannot say, God, just lead the way and leave this blank open thing without any preparation. Because God wants us to prepare. When He said to the children of Israel, I give you the land of Canaan, that all of your enemies I will dispossess before you. And He speaks to Joshua, get up. Get up and walk through the camp. Tell all the commanders, prepare the provisions. And so there's one thing about God giving a victory that is somewhat humanly unattainable, but there is still the human participation of having to get up, get on the battlefield, and participate. There is a human responsibility to divine intervention. And, and, I, and I share that a lot. And Interestingly here, as I see Paul navigate the steps that are in front of him, I see how God used just simple wisdom to accomplish truly significant things. Now, I do want to tread carefully because I don't want to um, scare you from or, or make you think that you should not pray for miracles because I've spoken messages about miracles as well. Right. I, I don't want to, to make you not seek the intervention of God on a daily basis because you're just going to live wisely. I know plenty of wise people, right? And uh, they live a great wholesome life, one that is just given due diligence every single day, but there is an aspect of their life that is somewhat incomplete because there, there is a realm of spirituality that is beyond the surface, that I need to be able to see beyond what I physically see and what Paul said, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces, the principalities of darkness. And my, my Christian eyes need to be able to see that. And so I don't want you not to see that. I don't want to scare you to say, don't pray for miracles because I definitely want you in your life of faith to pray for that. 
But we must not say that it's either or, that I live spiritually and I forgo this side, or I live this way and I don't consider the spiritual important. I, I don't uh, seek that type of intervention in my life. And it should not be pitted one against the other. And for God to show up in our lives, that's what we want. I just don't want us to limit how we see God showing up. Let me take you to a, a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. If you, if you want, flip there. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. In this passage of Scripture, we're introduced to a captain of an army of an adversary of God's people, Israel. Okay? His name was Naaman. You might have heard of him before or read this chapter. And in verse 1 it says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram. And so Aram was, again, it was an, uh, uh, just a consistent enemy of Israel in the Old Testament. Okay? And uh, that Naaman was, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Interesting. Okay? Now that should shake some of your um, spiritual eyes a little bit, your, your predispositions, your, your preconceptions of how God works. Sometimes we think that God only works when we plaster the name of Jesus on it, right? When it's done through a church or, or a believing person. But here we see that God gave victory to Aram through Naaman, right? Just like he used Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish purposes that was an unbelieving king, God can use things that we perceive to be anti-spiritual or unchristian to yet still accomplish his greater overarching purpose. And that we see that by the Lord, right, victory was given. But it says at the end of verse 1, the man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper, right? Interesting how it's just kind of like this little add-on description, and it was a huge thing to be a leper, an outcast untouchable, right? And now the uh, Arameans had gone out in bands and taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, speaking of Elisha, and then he would cure him of his leprosy. And so the Arameans go out, they capture, they pillage probably, and a little girl finds her way into the house of Naaman. And she is serving this couple. And as she discovers that this man has leprosy, she, just in the back of her mind, she's like, you know, I came from a place and I know that in my hometown there was a prophet by the name of Elisha and God does miracles through him. Right? And she just kind of throws it out to the mistress. Oh, you know, if only this man were back in Samaria, I know that he could be cured. And just kind of tosses that out. And for a person who is dealing with the sickness, in a sense that's terminal, wanting to be healed, wanting to be made whole, latches on to that statement, right? And that Naaman takes that and he goes with it and says this, right? Verse 4, And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. That's in the tens of millions of modern-day dollars. Okay? And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. All right? And the king's just astonished, like the king of Israel. And it came about when the king of Israel had uh, received the letter that he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God? 
to kill and to make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there was a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with his horses, his entire entourage, right? His chariots. And he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. I mean, what a scene in that village that day. And Elisha sent a messenger. Interestingly, Elisha doesn't even go himself. When a high-ranking person comes to your house, it's usually the, the owner of the house that would come out. But he sends a messenger out. Doesn't even see him face to face. And he says, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clinked. Right. So Naaman is bringing like dozens, if not hundreds of people, his chariots and animals are all coming, just coming, marching down the street of Elisha's village and comes to his door, comes to the gate, a messenger comes out and Naaman's expecting something grand, right? But the messenger says, just, just jump in the river, right? Just wash yourself seven times. In verse 11 it says, Naaman was furious and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me, speaking of Elisha, and stand on call of the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and he went in rage. And as he's just storming down the path again, some level-minded servants, this is what they did. Then his servants came near and they spoke to him and they said, my father, okay, positioning him, helping him to kind of perk up his ears, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean. And so he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Like Naaman, he was expecting some extravagant show, like something that was so noteworthy that God has done this. And so he brings everybody expecting this spectacle and all he gets is a messenger saying, throw a little water on yourself. Outraged, furious, what is this? Probably spits on the ground, marches away. And the servants are like, what do we do? What do we do? And I admire those servants. And they just help him to listen. They lower themselves. My father... And they speak truth. Like if that man asked you to do some grand old thing, would you not have done it? And he's like thinking to himself, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. But how much more now if he's just saying wash and be clean? And something clicks in his mind there. You're right. I was positioning this in a way that was framed for my glory, that I wanted and expected it a certain way, and yet... I should just be able to do this simple thing of take a bath. And can I say this? That one of the greatest measurements of our faithfulness to God, 
One of the greatest measurements is our willingness to do simple things well. Like, as, as I think about what it means to be a passionate Christian, a faithful follower of God, that you rarely think of this, right? Leading your family with integrity, running your business with honesty, doing the simple things, growing in maturity, getting to work on time, doing things properly, tying those loose ends well. And in so being a diligent worker, in so doing the simple overlooked things well, that that is a great measure of faithfulness to God. Just exercising simple wisdom. And this is why I believe maturity and sanctification, that's the great old spiritual word for just spiritual growth, becoming more and more like Jesus, sanctification. That's why those things have such a, a dominant place in Scripture. To be more like Christ, to align character with Him, to have my disposition, my, my natural reflex reaction in life, to be more godly. Right? And so I, I want us, you and I, you know, to be able to pray for miracles and deliverance, but I just want us to know that God's way of answering those prayers, more often than not, happens in simple and natural ways. Let me share kind of an example, this story, you might have heard a certain version of this before. There was a man who was, had a flood in his village and somehow he makes his way to the roof and he cries out to God, God, save me, save me, I need it, I believe that you can save me. And there are people coming and guy on a boat, he says, hey, come on, jump in. And his natural response is, no, I'm waiting for God. And then he leaves and a helicopter comes over. Hey, climb up. He says, no, I'm waiting for God. And the water continues to rise and he dies. And as he's drowning, he's saying, God, why didn't you save me? And the voice comes out, I sent a boat and a helicopter. Why didn't you get on? Right? But I think it just conveys a simple point that how we expect God to intervene and deliver us too often, I think, boxes Him into this certain way when He's doing it all along through the natural means that we have available to us every single day. We're praying, God, give me joy in life. And somehow we want a laser to zap our heart that all of a sudden we wake up one day joyful, looking at our life differently. When all along, the circumstances are exactly the same. And there was a way to have joy in the midst of it as well. That we find ourselves in a situation, we say, God, deliver me from this. I'm in a financial mess. And all along, He's given us wisdom to make good financial choices that we just refuse to walk in. And the deliverance of God, more often than not, it happens in natural ways, but we're expecting some grand old thing, as Naaman did. And so, it's really to say this, which is the second point. The supernatural is not a scapegoat. Right? that it's not an excuse. And to say it another way, 
that if I'm not willing to put in the work, I shouldn't expect God to. Like, If I'm not willing to put in the sweat, the time, the effort, I should not expect God to just simply rescue me out of that. Let me give you a couple of examples. A person who does not take good care of his body, right, is in a dire condition and he prays to God for health and wholeness. Now, when a person, if a person gets into a physical condition by negligence, for whatever reason, I believe God can intervene, right? But if a person of faith continues to live his or her life neglecting the body, forgetting about any type of health or nutrition of what they put into their body, putting themselves through exorbitant stress all of the time, of course the body will respond by breaking down. That is God's design. And to be able to neglect that and later on say, God, just somehow redeem this body, rescue me out of the pit that I crawled into, and just ask for this kind of escape clause, that I think it neglects God's design. It's a short-sighted way to view how God works. Yes, there are moments that I believe that when we get there, because even despite negligence, that God can redeem that and convey a message and teach us something, in that moment, but I think a bigger perspective is to be able to see the grander design of things. I mean, to give you another example, it's a parent who, neg- oh, a person who neglects uh, his or her spouse and children, and all of a sudden they pray for God to heal the relationships. That there were some steps that we missed. I mean, I mentioned I was a youth pastor. I remember as a youth pastor getting ready for service, sitting in the front row. We were just about to start service and all of a sudden one of the leaders comes and taps me on the shoulder and I look around and says, hey, can you come outside? I go outside, I go into the hallway and there was a parent standing there and there's a, there's a kid, relatively new, I don't know. And the story often went something like this. Uh, can you fix my kid? I don't know what to do anymore. And then I peer over the shoulder of the parent and there is this teenager just staring at the ground, completely embarrassed of the situation. Like there were some steps missed in parenting, right? And, and to ask for some sort of intervention that someone will be the savior that more often than not, we ask for God to be that savior to redeem our failure, which he does do. But if we are people of faith, And we ought not just go through life in negligence, neglecting all of God's design in the first place and somehow ask for God to just take care of it. That the supernatural ought not be a scapegoat. And to be able to use simple wisdom in our lives is just an everyday unspectacular thing that I believe God is honored if we do do. As I close with a couple of statements, praise team, you guys come back. I finish with this first one, that as a follower of God, sanctified wisdom is my first response. Let me just get that out there, right? Like as I'm going through life, regardless in the workspace, in the family, whatever sphere you're, you're thinking about, that your first response is sanctified wisdom. And I, I, I say sanctified wisdom in, in the realm that my heart is 
growing and trying to become more aligned to Scripture, to, to, to Christ. And as that happens in my life, God wants me to be able to see the world through a lens of faith and Scripture. And as I do that, God has given me capacities to, to filter through experiences and to be able to elevate a proper worldview and a set of values on the circumstance that I see in front of me and to be able to make a decision that is sanctified, that is wise. That's my first response, right? And as a follower of God, my second response is supernatural intervention. And I think often, especially depending on how dire the circumstance is, we think of this one as the first, and when this fails or it doesn't come through, we kind of go back to something, what else, and we just kind of makeshift ways. But I, I do want to say, stand back, have a, a grander, greater picture of God's design for humanity and history, and with that, make simple, wise choices while still seeking the hand of God in our daily lives. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen.